Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi there, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Well, aren't y'all just so welcome here to good old ink-stained wretches where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, normally I get to see you once a week, but now I get to see you multiple times a week as... Multiple times a week. Lucky you. uh, No, it is good. And, And as I've said before, as we're preparing for the debate that you can watch, America, on December 6th on News Nation and affiliate stations around the country as as we prepare to head down to Tuscaloosa I love to get to see my colleagues work with you instead of my my special treat it is being seen and appreciated by a wider audience and soon a much wider audience indeed I am looking forward to it and we plan to record an episode the day after the debate from Tuscaloosa. So we will be coming to you on next Thursday on schedule. From Tuscaloosa, the first Alabamian inkstained wretch ever. So that'll be fun. Heck yeah. What's your Okay. What just very quickly, what's your as you think about it, what what has surprised you about the process that you, what were you not expecting? That's a good question. Just just how how incisive actual, and funny I am. Uh, <laughs> the actual crafting of questions is more challenging than than I had I hadn't really given it thought. And so now I'm now that I'm in the you know, in it, that is challenging. Every word is important and and so that's been really interesting to learn about and enjoyable and I, you know, part of the fun of doing this whole thing was oh, it was a learning process of doing something I've never done before and knowing a little bit more about about how these things come together. But somebody said to me once, you know, learning is painful because you learn a bit because you're you're exposed to your own ignorance, and and that's been that's been fun too. The, the to learn uh, just how the hard it is. Debate debates are not interviews, and the uh, the hard part is your questions have to be. They have to be self-contained, whereas you're an excellent interviewer. I've interviewed people with you on a number of occasions, and you're an excellent interviewer because you're not afraid to just go there like, hey, explain that. Hey, what does that mean? Hey, what are you talking about? And ask those kinds of questions. But in a debate, you don't have the chance to do that kind of colloquy and follow up, follow up, follow up. So... You, you have certainly surmounted the learning curve on that. It's good to see. It's going to be a great debate. Well, you know, it's a good point because the other thing about an interview is you have an opportunity, you know, typically you walk in and you chat with the person beforehand and you have, you have an opportunity usually t- to make some kind of a personal connection with the person, chit chat a little bit. And then when you do challenge them in an interview, you can mix up like, you know, some friendly questions, challenging questions, much more of a of a one-on-one conversation where you're making eye contact with somebody and you can switch, you know, it's it, it's a conversation, not like a moderated thing where you've got multiple people, first of all, multiple moderators and then multiple candidates. This is a much colder format and I think is just 
a different ball of wax in that sense. Yes, it's definitely different wax. It's um, more clinical. It's it's definitely more clinical. Um, I use the analogy of hand grenades. Instead of being instead of volleying back and forth with your interview subject, you it all you have to get it all in one thing and have it not be too long, and get it up there and and see what happens when it goes off. Yeah, there's no in this. There's no. Oh, well, let me push back on you there. I don't think you mentioned you know blah 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 this or that I, exactly. There's no. There's no soft follow-ups like that. Exactly. No nudging. There's no nudging. Yeah. Well, let's jump into our front page for the week. Apropos this discussion, we will start with 2024. Chris, this item amused me, and this is from before Thanksgiving. In fact, it's from it's from Joe Biden's birthday. Yeah. And the Wall Street Journal headline was, is Biden too old to run again? We asked people born on his exact birthday. And the subhead was, about half of Americans born in 1942 are still alive. And many of them describe busy lives that include work. And the upshot of the story is, you know, people who are 81 years old don't think Biden's too old to be president. And I was just amused because I wouldn't anticipate that it's the 81-year-olds who think Biden is too old to, to run. And I'll just read a little bit from the piece. Many of those born on the same day as Biden describe busy lives that still include work. They d- express frustrations about being underestimated because of their age, contending that 80-year-olds today are healthier and more active than ever. At the same time, some acknowledge they face regular reminders that age is taking its toll, citing health problems and restless sleep. And then a quote from one of them, we've all declined, obviously, but you could still be pretty sharp, said Earl Evans, a retired wine salesman who lives in St. Augustine, Florida. Like almost all of the other 80-year-olds in this story, Evans was already aware he was born in the sa- on the same day as the president when a journal reporter relying on public records found and called him to discuss it. The smartest guy in the world could be 80, and it would be a damn shame not to have him in the White House, said Evans, who is president of a local wine club and fills his days with trips to the gym and the beach. Oh, the the giveaway, of course, in the story is almost half are still alive, almost half still living. Congratulations to the still living. Ridiculous. It's, Ridiculous. It's, I, I think it is a lot of the people who are younger than 81 who think Biden's too old to run again. Yes, he the young voter situation for Biden is the cause of is has a lot of causes, but that's it, the the older you get, the so I'm 48, so I once would have thought of 60 as pretty old. Now I'm like I don't know, 60's not that old. Me too. Yeah, 60's, <laughs> 60. You're still in the shank of things. You're still in that's really just middle age, and I when you're 25 or 30 thinking about 50 seems like woof no way so it's the goalposts continue to move and some of that is very understandable because you understand more and some of it is the fear of the icy grip of death what do we got next chris well we this is a little bit of a follow up so we talked yes. we talked before about the the patty cake interview that univision now under new ownership, did with Donald Trump and how it led to the walkout of one of its uh, top anchors. 
and the complaint was not only that the questions were too soft, but instead of having a US, their U.S.-based newsroom do it, they brought in somebody from Mexico to do it, and the questions were the questions were of the kind that Barack Obama very frequently used to get from American media outlets on on par with what enchants you about the presidency. So now their most prominent journalist, Jorge Ramos, who has done a battle with Trump for years, including getting thrown out of a press conference, I believe. Did Trump tell him to go back to Mexico? It was it was it was muy caliente. And so Ramos used his and a very interesting move, used his platform at the organization to write a column condemning the piece. I do not generally, well, certainly I do not consume uncritically the work of loyal Trump basher Judd Legum and his popular information substack. I but, do read that. So I was, he, he connected a dot for us about Jared Kushner's connections to the, to the Univision leadership and how he's working this angle. And whatever stories there once were about how Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump Kushner were distancing themselves from Trump after January 6th and not, not lined up with the, the new campaign, this would, would seem to put the lie to that a little bit. Okay. Oh. Chris, you had flagged Biden. This is no, uh, no, no, be no, no beef, no beef with Rosalind Carter. Not a bit. RIP. And we thank you for your service. But the coverage of her funeral just hit me wrong. And I couldn't figure out exactly what it was until the Washington Post obliged me with this headline. Biden to travel to Georgia to celebrate the life of Rosalind Carter. Rosalind Carter. Now, look, we don't deal, as we were talking about before, death is, it's, it's hard for Americans to talk about death, and I understand, but celebrate life, celebration of life is such a overused, it is so euphemized and drained of the, the matter. Nothing to do with Rosalind Carter. I just want to say, you can say memorial, you can say funeral. It's okay. You're you're allowed to say that. You can say that someone died. Everyone dies. It's all right. I appreciate that note as I'm not a fan of euphemisms as I'm sure listeners listeners of this show know. One of the first um, thing one of the first lessons I learned writing, reporting was we don't say passed away. We don't say went on to his reward. Yeah. We don't say we say that the person died because that's true. And this all of this gauzy Glub Glub is, is, does not help. It helps the, the writer feel better, but it doesn't help anybody else feel better because just euphemize. It's the, it's the neo Victorianism. While Victorians were obsessed with death, right? Like way, way too much, keeping locks of people's hair, giving away locks of people's hair at funerals and all of that stuff. It was a morbid society. We've gone the other way into magical unicorn toot thinking. And the and all that business, harumph, early well, harumph I like, today. I like that we have a section on Capitol Hill, and that the story under it is the following: Washington's secret weapon is a beloved Gen Z energy drink with more caffeine than God. 
which we'll talk about shortly. But when I when I saw this story, I told Chris, unfortunately, we're recording remotely this week, but we absolutely have to do a taste test of this thing. Chris, maybe we should do a taste test of this in, in Alabama because we'll be exhausted the night after the debate or the L- day after the I'm, debate. Let me look up carbs and Celsius. I think I don't think it has a lot of sugar. Well, we're going to I can't zero sugar. I see it right there on the can. Yeah, so the drink is Celsius. Yes. And it says it's a favorite drink of Gen Z. So we got to get this. We'll Instacart this to – so I'll read from the piece. When Washington, D.C. lobbyist Matthew Hoekstra or Hextra wants to have a quick meeting with a congressional staffer, he heads for a special spot in the basement of the Rayburn House office building, a sprawling complex on the hill. I love to take meetings in front of the Celsius vending machine, he told Business Insider. I'll recognize people who go there every day. You read that right. Celsius, the suddenly ubiquitous energy drink that comes in flavors like kiwi guava and Arctic vibe and is fervently beloved by Gen Z, is fueling Capitol Hill lobbyists, staffers in the press corps, and even some members of Congress. It's everywhere, said Brent Robertson, chief of staff for Republican Kansas Senator Roger Marshall and self-identified afternoon Selly man. So great. So we got to get this and try it. I would like to try Arctic Vibe. That is kind of your energy. Yeah. I would like to Arctic try that. Arctic Vibe is kind of your energy. I've I had it one time. It's okay. I will just say, if this is what's, quote, fueling Washington, they need to switch fuels because some, something is wrong. Maybe it's the fault of self. Maybe it's the fault of Celsius. Well, I would very much like to do a taste test next week. We're going to make it happen. We got to talk about Israel-Hamas war before we get to our facile file. There was a bunch in here, but I really thought this, this piece crystallized a lot of what we see happening in the coverage. Semaphore reports that the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are having to pull their unions away from making a statement pushing the administration towards to to support a ceasefire. And Semaphore reports, influential members of the country's largest journalist union are resisting calls to release a statement supporting a ceasefire in Gaza. The leaders of the union representing the Wall Street Journal sent a letter to its parent union, the News Guild, noting that journalists are afforded protected status in war zones and, and appearing to take a side could block reporters from attending briefs briefings or speaking to officials and could even make them military targets. Taking public positions on news events we cover damages the confidence our members have earned through decades of impactful reporting in war zones and throughout the world, fueling the misconception that reporters are advocates rather than observers. I mean, it is astonishing that something like that has to be said. Uh, astonishing. Other other than the use of the dreaded impactful an excellent, and uh, I agree. I agree with the sentiments, if not the use of the terrible word "impactful." And I love the fact that I got. I have to find it. A group called Communication Workers of America Palestine Solidarity has attempted to rally the more activist parts of the union, organizing an email petition calling on members of the News Guild to support a ceasefire. After last week's National News Guild meeting, the group cell said that the overwhelming quote mega majority of people in attendance at the meeting supported its petition for a ceasefire. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder why that the self-selected group of individuals who came to a meeting on this subject, which was 
intended to be to push a break of journalistic standards and to reject impartiality in favor of partisanship that a quote mega majority a worse word than even impactful uh, an even less impactful word than impactful that they would vote that way the the idea of you know we're sort of having our labor moment in america the idea that and nothing against guilds right sometimes newspaper guilds work well in setting standards for the quality of journalists and there's no 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 broad beef with the idea of guild newspapers but the idea that you could inject partisanship that you could take a side in this matter and do it uh, on an issue that is ripping apart campuses tearing apart communities that is so hot that anybody thinks that the answer is oh we need more opinion what we need here is just clearly more opinion that's some goofy business cwa palestine solidarity i disagree with you on one thing hit me I don't actually think that the votes would be all that different if the entire newsroom showed up. It might not be a super majority, but I do think it would be mega a majority. majority. Mega majority. I don't think please. it would be this group was that unrepresentative of the people in our newsroom. And and the thing that that saddens me and angers me is that it shows in the coverage. It shows in the coverage, which we will get to. This this was the best example. Of course, Israel is trading prisoners in its jail, Palestinian prisoners in its jails for the innocent hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th, many of them children. And one of the prisoners released by Israel was a woman who blew up her car attempting to kill Israelis. And the way the New York Times described her was the way somebody who supports ceasefire and does not support Israel's right to fight back against Hamas would describe such a person. They described her, the, her, her name is Isra Jabis, and they write, she was arrested that year after her car exploded at a checkpoint near Jerusalem in the West Bank, leaving her disfigured and an Israeli police officer seriously injured. Yes, her car exploded because she blew it up. It left her disfigured because she blew up her car. Miss Jabis claimed that it was an accidental fire, according to Aww. an account from Adamir, a prisoner's rights organization. The Israeli authorities said it had been an act of terrorism. You know, on the one hand, on the other, and and uh, an bad, outlet Bad called... luck that, having a spontaneous car fire happen <laughs> yeah. at an Israeli security checkpoint. What um, are the odds? And the, the outlet Honest Reporting writes, no, New York Times, Isra Jabiz wasn't, quote, accused of attempted murder. She was convicted because her car didn't passively, passively explode. She detonated a gas canister meant to be part of a suicide bombing. And they note that Adamir, the prisoner's rights organization, is affiliated with the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine terror organization. Again, the, the views of the reporters show in the coverage. And the piece that got me really worked up over the weekend was the following, again, in the Times, Gaza civilians, comma, under Israeli barrage are being killed at a historic pace. 
And they had to change or they changed the subhead that initially indicated that more civilians had been killed in Gaza than have been killed by Russians in Ukraine. Oh, Obviously, the attempt was to equate the Israelis with Vladimir Putin and suggest that, you know, this is unprovoked aggression. So they've they've changed that. But the problem, obviously, the problems are many fold, but the most obvious ones are that it is impossible to get accurate casualty figures out of Israel or out of Gaza, excuse me, because the only source is Hamas. The only source is Hamas. And the second is that Hamas deliberately weaves its military infrastructure into civilian buildings. And so while the piece is written to blame Israel for the civilian casualties, Hamas deliberately does this to make a PR problem for Israel by nestling itself under hospitals and in schools and so on and using human shields. And the Times really does not note this in its coverage. And it, it is upsetting to see. It, it is. And the idea of, I, I actually saw an excellent piece and I'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes, but an excellent piece talking about the, the difference between generations on this subject. And it was the, the protester, American protesters being interviewed as a 21-year-old college student. And the emptiness, right, the, the lack of historical context, and I know this is something that I just keep coming back to again and again, but it's just so obvious here, it has to be restated. The job of history is to provide context, right? The job of history is so that we can understand current events and our plans for the future in the context of what came before. And when you hear 21-year-olds and sadly, people much older talking about this issue as if, and by the way, what you can do is cherry pick one fact, right? If you, if you don't have a complete knowledge of the complexities and the difficulties of the situation, if you don't, if you don't take that view, it's, it's becomes only too easy to do exactly what you're saying is the, this is the, the false equivalency is pungent. The other thing that the that the piece excludes is the historic nature of Hamas's attack on Israel that even if Israel's response was unprecedented or historic in some way which which in fact that may require and I think many people would argue it does there's no indication of the you know just as 9/11 was a historic attack on our country that required unprecedented things on our part there's no there's no indication in this article that of the historic, unprecedented casualties that occurred and the historic nature of that attack, the public celebration of the murder of Israelis, the the first time, I think, in recent memory that Israel has felt it really had, that its survival was really at stake, you know, in half a century probably. And and that's that's nowhere in here. It's almost, the piece is almost facile in its in its writing, I might say. What do we have next here? Oh, here we are. Here we are at our facile file. This is a, a facile follow. The woman who we told you about, who was running for the House of Delegates in Virginia, who did porn for money with her husband on the internet. The Associated Press has a has a lengthy interview with the with this woman who lost a race that she 
probably, if not probably, certainly more likely could have won had her work as a pornographer not been made public. She's not backing down. What's she going to do, Eliana? She's, of course, going big. I mean, we had to know that this woman was not going to go away. She says, the piece tells us Gibson, who has faced harassment and death threats since the disclosure of the video set of her aims, using what platform I have to make sure that this does not remain acceptable, doing what I can to prevent this from happening to any other woman. I'm still figuring out next steps and what that looks like, but that is my plan. She's going to become, you know, a spokeswoman against, she's calling this revenge porn, which is a, an a insult to anyone who's ever been the vic- victim of revenge porn. That's right. This is self-revenge. This is, yeah, this, I mean, this is give me a break. In, inwardly directed revenge pornography. She says, consent to allow someone to view something that exists only as a moment in time <laughs> or exists only in their memory is very different than consenting to allowing someone to have something that remains a permanent object and can be shared or viewed indefinitely. I mean, this woman sold videos of her intimate moments with her husband and did perform sexual it acts was, on But demand. it was only supposed to be enjoyed as a moment in, quote, a moment in time or only in the memory of the people who purchased the this pornography and she that that this is I'm I'm very harumphy today but this is how we live this is the era of Trump this is the era of well we can call it the Barry Bonds ism which is uh, no shame no regret you don't walk away from it you don't say oof cuz the correct response when you're political career is derailed by producing pornography is to say, oof, I hope that I can go do something else or maybe even what I'm already doing and that in time, the the sting of this ignominy will fade. But it is definitely not to say, oh yeah, well, I am going to, uh, not only is what I did right, but everybody else is wrong and I'm going, and I'm going to just keep doing it. I'm going to do it more and more. It's, it is a, a unique sort of social psychosis of our time. Up next, we have textbook Washington oh, Post baby. piece. Oh, Textbook. Mwah. One of their deep reads. After affirmative action, a white teen's ivy hopes rose. A black teen sank. Cole Clemens aimed higher. Damar Goodman aimed lower. They both wrestled with feelings of fear, anxiety, and self-doubt after the Supreme Court remade college admissions. On the day affirmative action fell this summer, Jamar Goodman phoned his best friend the second he got home from Georgia Tech, where the 17-year-old black rising senior was conducting epidemiology research. So, Jamar said, safe to say Harvard is out, right? The Supreme Court ruled that morning in an ideologically split decision as opposed to what, that colleges could no longer use race-based affirmative action when weighing applicants. A majority of the justices found that race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection. So that would be schlocky enough. That would be quite schlocky. But the story also brings us a white devil. It also, the, the trope... I have no idea whether Jamar Goodman ever had a chance to go to Harvard or has less of, I have no, I have no idea, but Cole Clemens, the villain of the story 
why Cole Clemens participated in writer <sighs> Hannah Natanson's piece, I do not know. But talk about schlock, talk about heavy handed. Like here's this white devil. And the, by the way, the piece is 10 billion words long. And basically the, the message of the story is Cole is undeserving. Cole, privileged white person, is undeserving. And he's doing it at... This is the journalistic version of the infamous Jesse Helms hands ad. Do you know the Jesse Helms hands ad? No. So Jesse Helms ran an ad for his, I believe, first Senate campaign in which a white hands... It's called the hands ad because you see a white guy, white hands getting fired and a black guy getting a job. He's You're losing your job to black people because of affirmative action. And it didn't say that, but because it was a black hands and white hands, the, the, that, was the, that was the message, playing on white resentment. This is worse, right? This is, this is an even worse piece and just wrong. This is just pure D wrong. Okay. Oh, who we're 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 late to this because we were off last week. But who could resist? Who could possibly resist? BBC News: Black women most likely to die in medieval London plague. What it it's be it's beyond parody, right? If it was the Onion, you would you would believe it. But here's the the context reader context from Twitter. The study cited examined bodies of 41 plague victims, of whom nine were assumed, based on facial me measurements, not DNA evidence, to be women of mixed race or African ancestry. The sample size and methods are insufficient to support the headline. Talk about thirsty. Talk about racially obsessed. Holy cannoli. What about the next one? Fled climate chaos. Oh, Asylum law made decades ago might not help. Might not help. The New York Times. And they write, as humans continue to burn fossil fuels, pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and warming the planet, ocean temperatures are increasing. Over time, they have made Atlantic hurricanes stronger, wetter, and slower moving, making them greatly destructive once they touch land. The plight of the mosquito underscores the, climac the climatic conditions driving migration around the globe, particularly to the United States. Climate has been overlooked so far because asylum officers and immigration judges are not yet educated to be thinking about the climate piece, said Kate Sweet Jastrom, an asylum Moses. expert at the University of California College of the Law, San Francisco. This is up there with the piece we had the other week from the Washington Post about people eating the unthinkable. And it was not sweet human flesh. It was indeed water lilies. Why are people fleeing the triangle nations. What, what, what is, what is the cause? Is it wet hurricanes? What are, what, what is driving people to leave Honduras, El Salvador? What, what is bringing people from Venezuela to the U.S. Southern border? Is it hurricanes? I'm not saying that climate change or changing weather patterns have nothing to do with it, but I would say lawless, violent oppression. I would say shattered economies grinding poverty and the cruelty of human upon human. This, I, I got to say, we're more, it's more facile than usual this week. We are really in, we're in a special place. We're in a special zone. Well, the goal of this piece is to say, you know, asylum, asylum officers or immigration officers should indeed start to consider climate 
change as a category. Should they, um, should they consider the thousands of people sleeping in the streets in Chicago and New York? It's cold in those climates. I'm here. I'm here to tell you, it's cold in those. Should they consider those people? Should they consider the residents of Chicago? Should they consider the residents of New York? Should they consider the residents of cities that are being choked by where Democratic mayors are complaining vigorously about the inability to handle the tide of these folks? Should they consider that? Holy smokes. Holy smokes. Oh, but we haven't even got to the most most facile yet. We, we, we have only scratched the surface of facileness with this it's a beauty. It's a, it was sent. We, one of our readers, John Tucker of Overland Park, Kansas, did flag it. Many, I, I, I can say that we've got a brand because many folks sent it to us. Piece by Hillary Rosner in the New York Times. Why warblers flock to wealthier neighborhoods. In the unequal distribution of birds and other species, ecologists are tra- tracing the impact of bigoted urban policies adopted decades ago. TLDR, redlining that segregated, de facto segregation of housing led to, there's a great, by the way, of all the, of all the graphics, of all the news graphics, infographics that you will ever read, there is one that is environmental justice and social justice on an infinite loop, just pointing out for you dummies, the New York Times is pointing out for you dummies the connection between civil rights and urban conservation, which are two sides of the same healing circle. And what do we, why do we want this done? Bird watching, don't you know? How can we get more bird watching and birds into impoverished, drug, drug plagued, economically hopeless? How can we get more warblers into this place? It's, I, I feel, as I read it, I felt as if it was just written for me, that like you and Colin had hired someone to dummy up this whole piece just to annoy me. And if that, I, I wish that was so. I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked. I wish, I wish it was so. The, uh, here's, the, here's the close. The influx of urban ecologists fanning out across these understudied landscapes is likely to shed new light on the twinned fates of humans and their non-human neighbors. Practitioners of urban ecology say their discipline is brimming with the potential to make discoveries with real-world impact. Mr. Ellis Soto, for example, is working with students in underserved New Haven schools, making hip-hop and bachata music from bird songs as a way to connect youngsters to the wildlife living around them. Quote, now people are saying, heck yeah, I want to work in the toughest neighborhoods, Dr. Wood said. Mwah. Mwah. That's just, it's, it's, it's too good to even believe. Just a world of birds. Way to go. Well, this was mine in, from the Wall Street Journal on Sunday. To, at the headline is, to shrink learning gap, this district offers classes separated by race. High school in Evanston, Illinois, offers so-called affinity classes in which black and Latino students are separated from white students. Chris, I think I remember we had a Supreme Court case about this about 70 years ago. Yep. I remember something about that. Brown something. Yeah. And this piece tries to tell us that this is legal because separating 
the kids can separate themselves voluntarily. But, you know, that decision, the reasoning was that separate is inherently unequal. I, I, and I, I will only say the idea is crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. The idea into itself is crazy. We're going to segregate classes, but it'll be self-segregated, right? It's going to be self-segregated classes. And that way the, it will make non-white students feel better and more comfortable. And they'll be able to get the attention and encouragement that they need without being oppressed by people like that kid from the Washington Post article looming, exactly. o- looming over their shoulder, taking advantage of their privilege. But I, w- I, will, I will say the piece does, look, it, the piece does not come out in a condemnatory fashion of it, but, and this is not just because it is my American Enterprise Institute colleague, Max Eden, does bring in the, the other point of view. I, I, the, this is not racist warbler distribution. I think the, the journal did a little better there. So uh, they write, Federal anti-discrimination laws prevent public schools from mandatorily separating students by race, but education lawyers say optional courses can comply with the law. They don't actually name any education lawyers who say this. And we at The Beacon spoke to several who who did put their names to their quotes. Who said this is this is actually not legal. But that's sort that's really beside the point. And it is disturbing. The piece notes that in Minneapolis, Seattle, San Francisco, Oakland, and Evanston. There are these racially exclusionary classes available. And what what struck me is there's a woman quoted in the piece who says, a lot of times within our education system, black students are expected to conform to a white standard. Like what? Dina Luna, who designed black-only courses in Minneapolis, told the journal, at the same time, these same people say well, we need these courses to boost the performance grades of black students. So the same people who say, you know, demanding excellence is white supremacy say we need these courses to boost the performance of black students. None of the logic makes sense. And it is it is appalling to see the left um, embrace the logic of separate but equal. There was a, a novel written five years ago, maybe more, called The Sellout about a guy who it's a a dystopian future novel let's see i'm looking right here it's it's a darkly satirical piece it's paul Beatty wrote it and it's 2015 a 2015 book and it's a guy who uh, is trying to sell himself and the premise of the book is a black man is trying to sell himself into slavery and as i read this piece i i i thought of that book and i thought i thought of those ideas and, you know, if you want to know how wrong this is and how un-American this is, imagine if you did it the other way. Imagine, just, just try it. White students say, we learn better from white teachers. We learn better in all white classes. Our scores are higher in all white classes. And uh, by the way, they cite studies that show improved educational outcome such as graduation rates for black and Latino students taught by teachers of the same race. Maybe that would be true of white students. Maybe you'd find that white students did better with white teachers. Imagine anyone putting that forward. And I understand about remediating the institutionalized racism of the past. I understand. I understand why that would be perceived differently. But just think about how hideous that would sound. This is, we, we truly 
are cannibalizing the progress that we made in this country, much of the progress that we've made in the country on these matters. Chris, that brings us to our style section. And this piece is amazing. Axios had the cheesecake factor, why these restaurants can reveal a mall's financial success. I knew you would like this. Oh my gosh, because I love the cheesecake factory so much. Call it the cheesecake factor. The presence of a cheesecake factory restaurant in a mall is an indicator of the mall's financial health. A new paper all about malls from Moody's Analytics finds by the numbers, about 93% of loans backed by malls with a cheesecake factory are current on their payments. Compare that to around 72% of those without the restaurant. Zoom I mean, out. What else do you need to know? You got to zoom out. You got to zoom. That's that what you got to do. You awesome. got to zoom out. It's presence of certain stores within a mall, like a Lululemon or an Apple store, can be, quote, an unscientific measuring stick for the prospects of one mall over another, writes Matt Reedy, director of CRE Economics at Moody's. To wit, people go to the mall, go to the mall to go to Apple. They don't go to the mall and end up at an Apple. That so what 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 would you rather your mall have? An Apple store or a Cheesecake Factory? A Cheesecake Factory. I find the Cheesecake Factory overwhelming, I guess is what I would say. Not me. Not you. You're into the fifty-seven mm-hmm. page menu, the giant portion. Mm-hmm. You embrace. Completely. There is, by the way. The most remarkable Cheesecake Factory in America is right by the White House. They put a Cheesecake Factory right by the White House, which always delights me when you see DC types striding about purposefully. And then the bus, the bus disgorges Americans into the to the the waiting arms, the waiting embrace of the Cheesecake Factory. It is. I love it. All right. This this could have been this next stylistic item could have been facile files, but it, it is a, a broader cultural comment here uh, flagged by ex-user Corbin Barthold in a piece on a Wall Street Journal, I won't say hit piece, but a scorching Wall Street Journal piece about Instagram's algorithm delivering toxic a toxic video mix to adults who follow children. So basically it is, the, the allegation is, that Meta is enabling, set, yeah, ch- yeah, perverts. exactly. They're, they're 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 groomers, so it goes. Yeah, following what it described as Meta's unsatisfactory response to its complaints, Match, I'm assuming this is Match.com, I don't know, began canceling Meta advertisements for some of its apps. Oh yes, it is, such as Tinder. In October, it has since halted all Reels advertising and stopped promoting its major brands on any of Meta's platforms. Quote, we have no desire to pay Meta our, uh, to market our brands to predators or place our ads anywhere near this content, said Match spokeswoman Justine Sacco. Now, you may find that name familiar. Certainly, Mr. Barthold did, who comments, and if there's one person who knows the damage that can be done by toxic social media posts, reminding us that it was in 2013 that Justine Sacco, spokeswoman, now for Grinder, Tinder, et cetera, posted on a, on a flight to South Africa, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white, exclamation point. And you remember that story about Justine Sacco because it has been written about 10 bajillion times about the, the dawn of cancel culture. She was the first, first canceled, right? She did it on a plane and it became a moment on Twitter and people were like, you know, is she, has, she, has she landed yet? Has she landed yet? And then of course, when she landed, 
she was canceled and blown up and all that, all of, all of that business. And I don't believe that Justine Sacco should have to live with her error for a, a, a tasteless joke for the rest of her life. But I do think, I do, I do, I do think that perhaps commenting a person so famous for toxic social media content is maybe not the right person for an organization to put forward to complain about toxic media content. I don't, I'm just, it would be like if the woman who lost her House of Delegates race in Virginia became a consult, became a media consultant for campaigns. Just say, just say. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And while there has been a lot of bad coverage of the Israel-Gaza war, there was a wonderful piece in the Wall Street Journal published last night on Wednesday evening, we're recording Thursday morning, about the travails of the two of two little girls who were held captive and released by Hamas. And One is Emily Hand, whose father did a lot of media, so people know her. She's nine years old. And the other is Hila Rotem, who's 13. And the the headline is, Held Hostage by Hamas, How Two Girls Survived Captivity in Gaza. They were released without Hila's mother, who had cared for them during their detention. And the story talks about how... Israel is actually asking the children and their families not to broadcast too much about their experience because they are gaining some intelligence from it, which I thought was interesting. But they write, a picture of the grueling conditions that hostages endured in Hamas captivity is beginning to emerge based on the accounts of some of their friends and families. At hospitals and in private settings, relatives and friends are focused on helping their their recovery. Israeli security officials have asked those releasing their family members not to speak publicly about their experience, experiences while, gov- while the government collects intelligence and tries to re- negotiate the release of more hostages. But this piece recounts how they, the little girls and others were told only to whisper so that they couldn't be found and that even when they got out, they were still whispering to each other for days and that about the psychological toll that not seeing daylight for 50 days takes on these kids and how little food they had. And it, it's a it's a petrifying but wonderful and necessary piece. So we'll link that. This is good to share. Okay, I have a little, uh, for my obsession, I started with a little homework for you people, which is to follow on Instagram, Michael Moynihan. He formerly of Vice, the Vice show on HBO, formerly of the Daily Beast and Newsweek. And you, I'm sure, already listened to him on the, the fifth podcast and is, is excellent. But you should follow him on Instagram at M-M-O-Y-N. And you should ask him for a follow so that you can watch him interview. He, he posted an interview with the out and then back CEO of... Open Chat GPT, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sam Altman, the deposed tech CEO, and his triumphant return, da 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 da. And there has been so much coverage of the open AI, the drama at the open AI. And I I tried to I tried to shut it out. I I tried to block it out as I tried to block out 
a lot of this goofy business because I think that we're covering it wrong, right? I think that much of the coverage under underestimates the upside potential, overstates the risks from AI, and generally just gets wrong where it's going and how it's going to work. Because I think it's mostly going to be a tool and not our oppressor. There will be problems, not saying there won't be problems, but a lot of it has been real panicky, whatever. But then I watched the clips from Michael Moynihan's interview with this guy. What a goofus. This person who was talking to Michael about his proposal for a guaranteed universal income for all humans in a, in a child's baseball cap, in a silly child's baseball cap, with his eye rolling and sneering and clucking to regular normal conversations that Michael was asking him, I was, I was blown away. <laughs> I was blown away. And then it all made sense because this dude is the, uh, the apotheosis, right? The, the, the perfect, he is uh, Elizabeth, what was her name? Elizabeth Holmes level Silicon Valley goofus, right? And I thought, oh my gosh. So what's going on here is the, this person who has tutted, clucked, and eye-rolled his way in a children's baseball cap to the to convince everyone that he has magical powers or magical things are going on. His board tried to oust him, and I can see why. I can cer- I can certainly see why. If the, if this guy with his with his little hat on is tutting everybody and asking for more and more authority, while at the same time saying that he controls a power so massive that no one no one can understand it. I would want to be rid of this person too, which leads me to the next part of my ruffled, ridged chip of an obsession, as you can hear. Do you remember the everybody on TikTok's talking about Osama bin Laden's letter to America? Do you, yes, do you remember yes. that? Okay. You will find another thread here in the show notes flagged by an intrepid pony that, which is, how many people were talking about Osama bin Laden's letter to America on TikTok? And you know what the answer is? Not very many. The answer was not very many, but it was a story we loved. We wanted it to be true, right? But when you break down the numbers, according to the Washington Post, there were around 275 TikTok videos using the hashtag letter to America hashtag, which was viewed about 2 million times based on what this correspondent uh, saw on Google, the hashtag actually accounted for a pretty small minority of videos. Most of the big videos were doing, if you know, you know, sort of subtweet about it. But it's still a useful benchmark for context. The most popular hashtag on TikTok over the last seven days was TikTok Shop Black Friday, which has about 380 million combined views. So just saying that. And then to close out the ripple of obsession, Sports Illustrated doing AI wrong. Dear Sports Illustrated, once good, now pretty schlocky. They not only, so you can totally have AI generated articles and AI generated articles may help save local news. There could be a lot of use for this, but not if you do what Sports Illustrated did. And from Futurism, Sports Illustrated published articles by fake AI generated writers. We asked them about it and they deleted everything. And what what Sports Illustrated apparently did, or it seems that they did, was uh, generate articles and then generate <laughs> and then generate writers to have supposedly authored the articles. Don't do that. 
don't don't do that. I know the athletic is crushing you. I, I feel your pain. I understand. But don't generate your generators. Harumph. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week. Do it. Which is reader mail. And the, our first note is from Sarah P. And she writes, as a Southern West Virginia native, I regret to inform Chris that the King Tut Drive in closed at the end of August. I heard. The end of an era. However, the best slaw dog is still available. He can obtain one at Tom's Carryout in Oak Hill, West Virginia, and enjoy it while paying his respects to Hank Williams, whose death was discovered there. Well, Sarah P., Thank you. I did hear about that after I rhapsodized over the King Tut. I'm going to turn this over to my my Oak Hill expert, George Gannon, to see what he has to say. I've got people in the Oak Hill Metroplex. He's going to, but right now, I would say Jim's drive-in outside of Lewisburg is 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 the best one in my Rolodex, but I'm certainly open to exploring Tom's carryout. Thank you, Sarah P. Our next note is from Janet Walker in Georgia, and Janet writes, as a Georgian, we have all learned how to pronounce her name. It's Fanny, not Fanny. Love your podcast. Please tell Meat Man he is looking great. Meat Man. Me- that is an awesome note. Meat Man, the, the beefiest superhero. It's a great, yes. Threat- I, can, I can consume bags of meat in a single chomp. It's great. And finally, we have a note from Luke. He writes, Dear Wretches, when y'all are in Tuscaloosa for the debate, I'd highly recommend eating at Nick's in the Sticks. It's a classic local dive-in steakhouse, filet mignon served on paper plates, not in bags. Sorry, Chris, with delectable drinks and dishes. We are totally going there. I want it. I, Nick's. Yeah, me too. I'm here for, oh, I just looked at the picture. This looks like Mario's Fishbowl in Morgantown, West Virginia. I am here for it. Thank you. Yay. Awesome. Awesome. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but you, as always, will lead by example. I love. Take it away. You, I, I loved this piece from the New York Times. Oh, so Pandeb wrote this piece for the New York Times. Headline, nom, nom, nom. What's the deal with Cookie Monster's cookies? If you ever wondered what the Sesame Street Muppet is really eating. We have the answer. And I just love, I I love Muppet, Muppetry generally. I have a real soft spot for Muppets of all kinds. But Deb went through all of the, the real story behind what really goes in these cookies. And the answer is they're like dog biscuits in the sense that they can't have oil or fat in them. So they would stain his fur or they would they would they would mat his fur so instead they are they're they're very dry not very edible and apparently Adam Sandler ate one one time and didn't like it. Chris, my favorite item was a wonderful New York Times interview that's a little bit old but nonetheless worth flagging with the literary agent extraordinaire Andrew Wiley who represents authors and the estates of authors, including Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, Martin Amis, John Updike. You know, the thread between these guys is they're all elite, highbrow. He doesn't do the, he calls them, you know, he doesn't do the novelists that you find in the aisle at the supermarket. And 
the headline is when ruthless cultural elitism is exactly the job. And I had the pleasure of having lunch with Andrew Wiley Get out of here. in college. And he tells, uh, reading this, I realized he definitely has a shtick and a story he tells about himself. But I asked him, he's so interesting that I asked him the same question that this interviewer asked, which is, would you ever write an autobiography? Because he's fascinating. And my favorite exchange was the following where the interviewer asked him, how do you understand the contradiction that the crappy books that sell so well are what allows for the publishers to pay big advances to your writers? You need the crappy stuff to do well, right? And he responds, that's the publisher's view. And <laughs> the interviewer says, what's your view? And he says, different. It's a phenomenal interview. The writer asked him about artificial intelligence quote, oh God, let's not talk about artificial intelligence. I'm so sick of hearing about it. And I don't think anything that we represent is in danger of being replicated on the back of or through the mechanisms of artificial intelligence. Yes. Yes. Oh, totally. It's really piece. wonderful. And and the reason I actually had lunch with him was because he's so highbrow. He actually represents a bunch of college professors and their, you know, eggheaded history books that are that are excellent books of history. He really is. And he he told me he he failed out of the elite St. Paul's boarding school. He almost, I'm not sure if he has a degree from Harvard, but he almost dropped out of Harvard. And he he was so memorable. He he talked about reciting the first 17 pages of Finnegan's Wake, which, which is James Joyce's most impenetrable novel. I've never even opened the book to make his way into some graduate seminar. And he mentions Joyce in this interview. He's obviously a lover of James Joyce. Totally fascinating guy. And I highly recommend the interview. It's this, phenomenal. I, I want to just uh, share this little run, which is here's how to be interviewed. What's an example of when a publisher or someone else in the business disagreed with you and they turned out to be right? Answer, I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> there must be something. That's what living a charmed life is all about. Denial, selective memory, having, having things happen the way you intended to have them happen. <laughs> you can't think of one thing. I can't, but my memory is not absolutely perfect. Just mwah, do it like it's a great. deposition. So good. It's great. Well, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. Don't forget, leave us a five-star review. And please join us next week from Tuscaloosa. For See it next in the sticks. Yeah. Chat. Yep. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.